So every generation has certain mottos that even after that generation has passed still holds a place in our collective imagination. And it helps us better understand what defined them as a society. And sometimes it even serves to inspire the generations that come after. For instance, the poster, Keep Calm and Carry On, which we've all probably seen and which has been reappropriated many times over, was actually a motivational poster that the British government produced in 1939. Keep calm and carry on. And why? Because there was incessant air attacks from Nazi planes that became a part of their evening liturgy for months on end. So this poster served to steal the collective nerves of the nation to keep moving forward in the teeth of war. It shows a people dogged in their determination to fight evil to the end. We still find it inspiring. Or consider the motto Carpe Diem, Latin for seize the day, which originated from the pen of the poet Horace several decades even before Christ was born, and yet it still remains relevant and inspirational. A reminder to be present, to steward each minute well. Another slogan that has stuck for us was, ask not what your country could do for you, rather ask what you can do for your country. A reminder that a noble society is defined by glad sacrifice, not by entitlements. And though many of the old slogans still work for us today, what's interesting is how the reverse is seemingly becoming less true. That is to say, much of the taglines from our day would have been totally incomprehensible to previous generations. Now, we can understand that they may be perplexed because of the hashtag in front of it. They wouldn't know what to do with that. But of course, more, the message itself would have baffled, though I'm sure there are several that we can all think of. There's one that was quite popular just a few years back that probably more than any other would have totally befuddled our great-grandparents. And it was the phrase, or perhaps the word, adulting, perhaps hashtag adulting. Which, of course, is when we were calling attention to the fact that we were doing something that a responsible adult would do. I just did my laundry. Hashtag adulting. Now, the mere fact that the word was created is a significant commentary on one of the greatest challenges that we face in our time, namely that of delayed maturity. Because what's true is the thing that we were doing at 28 that seemed impressive for us was probably what our great-grandma did when she was seven at 4 a.m. before she milked a dozen cows and then walked to school. She would not have understood it. Um, adults should adults, she would say. And I wonder if the trend faded out because we collectively realized what it was implying, actually. It's almost like we took a psychological selfie that we thought was cute, but then realized it was actually maybe a little embarrassing, if not tragic, perhaps. As Paul said to the Corinthians, when I was a child, I spoke, and I thought like a child. When I became a man, I, I started to put those things away. But it is no secret now that our society is one that is marked by delayed and even arrested maturity. Now, of course, there are certainly myriad reasons that we could point to to explain this phenomenon. Of course, we all have different journeys, and there are always 
different struggles we face. But as Christians, we understand that all efforts to address this issue outside of Jesus Christ are finally futile. Sure, we can get some tips here and there on how to manage our lives better, on how to be more responsible, etc. But it's only in Christ that we can finally actually mature as humans in the way that God intended. Only in Christ can we move forward towards the telos, towards the goal that God created for humanity, namely glorifying Him by imaging Him more and more in all of our lives, in the way that we live, in the way that we love, in the way that we work, in the way that we worship. Only in Christ can we bear the fruit of maturity that will grow up into eternity. And the reason this can only be done through Christ is because Christ came not to make humans a little better. Christ came to institute a new humanity, to institute a new way of being human. He didn't come to put makeup on orcs. Rather, in Christ, we were recreated. We are new creations. We are, to keep the Tolkien motif going, transfigured from orcs into elves. We have gone from grayscale into technicolor. And before anyone can truly mature, they must be reborn. Then and only then can we grow up more into God's intention for humanity, into true maturity. And as we've seen numerous times, Paul, as an apostle of Christ, had this as the main point of his ministry. The main point of Paul's ministry was to convert pagans to Christ and then to spur them on to maturity in Christ, into this new way of being human. And we see that explicitly in the text that we've been in for the past two weeks. Paul has been giving the Philippians a a vision for running the Christian race and pressing forward and moving upward. And in verse 15, Paul says that this type of vision that he's been articulating is how maturing Christians act and and think more and more. And today we're going to continue on in this vein. But before we do, I thought it might be helpful to pour some more biblical foundation into this understanding of being a new humanity in Christ. Because it's all over the scriptures, and it really is essential to understanding the goal of Christian maturity. But it occurred to me during the prep that perhaps that may sound a bit strange to your ears. So I want you to, I want you to see it from the scriptures. I, I want us to see the glory of the transfiguration that happened to us as Christians, which is why we really can grow up more and more into God's design for humans initially. So just two or three quick passages. Colossians 1.13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and then he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So new citizens in a new kingdom, or Ephesians 2, we see it crystal clear. He says, for Christ himself is our peace. 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's not talking about us and God. He's talking about different types of human groups, as we'll see here. That's where the hostility has broken down. But notice, the hostility didn't cease because they just learned how to get along a little better. Look what happened. He said, how? Because he created in himself one new man. That word is anthropon, a new anthropology, a new humanity in place of the two. That's how he made peace. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints. And you're all members of the household, singular, of God. And then 1 Corinthians 15 shows us these two fundamental humanities. For as in Adam all died, so Adam was our covenant head, born into Adam, our trajectory was death, but so also then in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ didn't just come to make humans a little better. He came to inaugurate a new kind of humanity, a new, perhaps, species of humanity that can now truly fulfill the telos of why humans exist. Even one way to understand the incarnation in light of the Advent season is God became a man in Jesus so that he could make us into a new humanity. So, with, with this in mind, we now return to Philippians 3, 12 through 16. So if you haven't opened your copy of God's Word to there yet, please do so now. That's where we will be. And here, Paul is putting all these things before us in metaphor form. He uses the metaphor of Christians running a race, running this marathon of maturity, of taking hold more and more of what is ours in Christ on the path to resurrection. And he's calling us, he's calling Christians to catch the vision, catch the vision that he's putting before us, to think maturely like him. Last week we noted that maturing Christians, first, they glory in the grounds of their assurance. They know the only reason they can run is because Christ has already made them his own. And then we saw that this assurance, far from being a sedative, actually compels us onward. Assurance isn't our arrival. It's the pistol at the starter block, according to Paul. It's the pavement on the race that we're running. Assurance is the wind at our back on the way. So today we'll consider two more ways from the text of how maturing Christians think. So remember again, look at verse 15. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. So that's where we're, that's where we're getting this, which means the verses beforehand were that. Okay. First, maturing Christians know they are not perfect but they long for more. Maturing Christians know they're not perfect, but they long for more. This is in the first part of verse 12 again. Paul says, Not that I've already obtained this, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now, what's interesting in that verse 
is that the word that's translated perfect comes from the same root word in the Greek for mature in verse 15. Full maturity is not something we'll arrive at on this side of the horizon. As long as we have breath in our lungs, the sculptor will continue to chisel, the spirit will continue to convict, and the flesh will need to be fought. But Paul says he has attained a true level of maturity, so attaining genuine maturity does not mean that we are without weaknesses or points of immaturity. Rather, the maturing person longs to know his weaknesses and longs to know his temptations better so they can be more sanctified, which takes humility. It's never fun to see a point of immaturity in ourselves. Growing pains are a very real thing, both physically and spiritually. And every single one of us is in real time in the throes of sanctification. So the question for all of us is not if we have areas to mature in. The question is, how will we respond when they are brought to the surface? How will we deal with the light, whether the light comes directly from Scripture or from a biblical book or from a Christian friend? When the nerve is hit, what will we do? That's the ultimate question. Will we move towards the light and towards the upward call, which is what Paul is pleading with them to do? That's why he says, I'm not perfect yet. I'm with you in that. Will we do that? Because we're confident in our standing before Christ, and we are confident in the camaraderie we have within our fellowship, that we are all on the path together. No one's arrived. Or, when immaturity is exposed, Will we shrink into the shadows? Will we default towards defensiveness or despair, both of which the enemy is totally fine with, as long as it keeps us stuck, as long as he can get us isolated? See, part of Paul's maturity was his ability to openly acknowledge that he is not perfect yet. He is not where he wants to be yet. But... Rather than becoming defensive or despairing or deflecting, Paul uses that as a rallying cry. He says, yes, we're all not where we want to be, but God is calling all of us up higher. So let's run towards that end together. And something that's sweet about this interaction with the Philippians, the fact that he can speak this way to them, it reveals that he had the type of relationship there that he could call them higher. He could say that. Because one of the tragedies of our hypersensitive, easily triggered times is that it keeps Christians from, in love, speaking frankly to one another with biblical wisdom. And here's why I say this is a tragedy. I'm not being dramatic here. God designed sanctification in such a way as to make exhortation and admonition from maturing Christians who are on the path essential. To say it another way, the Bible has no category for a healthy Christian that does not have other Christians speaking with precision and courage and love into their life. Here's a quick handful, and we can go to many places, but a quick handful of things that shows this is part of the design 
for sanctification, us calling one another up higher together. Proverbs 27, 17. It says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. There are times where there will be hard words. Hebrews 3.13, it says, Exhort one another every day. He is so urgent, so emphatic. Exhort one another every day, as long as you can call today, today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Which means, if the enemy wants to keep Christians immature and isolated, he simply needs to create a hypersensitive culture with many relationships so fragile that they are just one wrong sentence away from breaking. A culture where folks are easy to offend and impossible to admonish. And this is one of the challenges of having so many churches in one city. It keeps us from pushing through hard conversations together because if I'm offended, I'm gone. There's a thousand other places I could go to. And Paul would say, oh, these things ought not be. This is part of the path. And Paul casts all of this maturing process in a far more redemptive, far more happy warrior light. He says that he's not even fully mature. He's not perfect. He's not arrived. Of course we aren't there yet, he says. But let's run together towards the upward call in Christ. And this is what I desire for us. I so desire Pilgrim Hill to be a community that has the type of relationships that, number one, assume we haven't arrived yet. Of course we're all in process. Of course we have areas of immaturity. And, number two, we all want to go hard together after it. We all love the Word of God. We all want to be brought to bear beneath the Word of God. And we desire and even expect to be encouraged and spurred on and admonished. A type of place where the love that we have for each other is shown not in the fact that we never have hard words, rather in the fact that we value each other so much and we so long to take hold of more of Christ and we so long to have our grandchildren be Christian friends that we work through challenging things as we call each other further up together. Ironing, sharpening iron will have sparks from time to time. We can work through that. Colossians 3 says, you have a complaint against your brother? Of course you do. Go to them. Tell them it. And then forgive one another and keep moving forward together. Let's continue to commit to this together. And we can expect mature, godly fruit to be the bloom in due season. So maturing Christians know that they are not fully there yet. We're not perfect. But together, we long for more. We want to go further up into the upward call of Christ. Next, how do maturing Christians think according to Paul here? And I would argue that this next one really is the beating heart of this passage. Number two, and lastly, maturing Christians forget what lies behind and they strain forward to what lies ahead. This is straight from the text, verse 13. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own yet. I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on there. One of the chief things that keeps Christians from moving further up into the maturity that God calls us to is getting stuck in the past. Constantly, not forgetting what lies behind, but remembering what lies behind. And Paul here says, I forget about that. I've ripped out the rearview mirror from my car, and I'm so fixated on where Christ is at work right now and where he's taking me that I don't have time to look back all that often. And I believe this is such an important word for our specific day because this verse from the mouth of God is a rebuke to the prevailing wisdom of our therapeutic age which has grown obsessed with dredging up the past over and over again to find all the childhood wounds and to sink down deeper and deeper into the mire. And the church has been so impacted by this and not for their good. Now hear me. The Bible, of course, is not anti-understanding your past. It's not against knowing your story, knowing your people. It's really into genealogies. But Paul is using hyperbole to make a point. This is hyperbole. Can we understand that, right? He doesn't actually forget. In fact, Scripture often calls us to remember. We don't want to take this verse woodenly or simplistically, of course. Wisdom requires that we understand, in a sense, what lies behind. Because in the providence of God, we are deeply formed by our past and especially by our family. When you are poured into a form for 18 years, you're going to kind of look like that thing at the end of it. The wise man understands how that works. So part of maturity, according to the grand sweep of Scripture, comes through remembering. But the overwhelming thing that we're told to remember is the faithfulness of God through it all. Yet we are also called to remember, to look back in a sense, Because generational sin is a real thing. Scripture is clear about that. The sins will pass on to the third and fourth generations. And so we do well to understand, through knowing where we came from, both the blessings that we've inherited and what temptations we might be predisposed to, so that we can put an axe to the root of generational sin. But the introspection and the dredging of our souls that is so promoted and so prevalent in the church in our day through books and through pop psychology that masquerades as spiritual formation is often not just unbiblical, but it's anti-biblical and therefore not helpful. Psalm 19, David says, Keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. And I would argue that so many presumptuous sins have been fostered and inflamed through the encouragement to look back through the lens of seeing all the ways that you were wronged, which this cultivates the presumptuous sins of bitterness and envy and unforgiveness and pride. The enemy has gotten a lot of mileage out of Christians excusing their own sin in the name of a therapeutic journey. He's helped get many a wound infected through constant rubbing it. And the maturing Christian knows this. But the biggest problem for the Christian with getting ensnared by hurt from our past is it holds the providence of God 
in contempt. It holds the providence of God in contempt. God is the author of our story. And there is nothing that we have gone through that wasn't absolutely essential in the wisdom of God to bring about the good thing that he has purposed to do in each one of us. Consider Joseph, betrayed by envious brothers, sold into Egyptian slavery, then held in prison for several years because he was lied about by Potiphar's treacherous wife. If anyone could have gotten stuck, if anyone could have played the victim, it would have been Joseph. But what did Joseph have absolutely settled in his mind? It was that every step of the way, God was not only sovereign, he was good. He was good. It says he remembered God. He remembered who his God was. It was absolutely settled. And it's stated so wonderfully in that oft-quoted verse, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. Because Joseph kept his eyes up at God and then forward at the goal, rather than constantly looking over his shoulder and seething, untold thousands were blessed and saved even through his leadership. Though Joseph came to Egypt as a slave, his trust in the providence of God made him the freest man in that land, who then pushed the messianic promise forward. And Paul knew the same freedom for the same reason, even as he sat in prison. He says we are not enslaved to our past. Rather, we're the freest people on earth. We're the ones who have been freed to forget what lies behind and to press onward. And Paul didn't say this because he was calloused. Paul didn't say this because he didn't have the Enneagram and therefore didn't really understand how essential childhood was. He didn't say it because he himself didn't have grievous sin in his past. He did. Paul had a past. Perhaps the thing that most threatened to keep you stuck in the past is not how you've been sinned against, but perhaps the sin that you've committed. Perhaps it still haunts you even. Well, guess what? Paul's past sin was far worse than yours. You may have committed some doozies, but have you ever murdered Christians? That's what the Apostle Paul did. Have you ever imprisoned women and children for being Christians? Paul had. He even self-identified as a former blasphemer. Yet, Paul self-consciously knew that the reason Christ chose him was so that we would stand amazed at just how much patience and just how much grace Christ really has towards all of us. He says that, I think, in 1 Timothy. The reason is so that you would see I'm a trophy of the patience of Christ and be encouraged. By that. Don't you dare think for a second that your sin is too big for Christ to deal with. Don't you dare think for a second that your sin is so heavy that even God can't lift it. That's not humility. That's pride. Some of the best news in the world is you are not more powerful than Jesus Christ. And Christ has said, not only did I author your past, I suffered to take care of the sinful parts of your past. Here again, the chains of our past 
shattering beneath the proclamation of Colossians 2.14. Paul writes, Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. And how did he do that? He set it aside because he nailed it to the cross and destroyed it. Destroyed the power of sin. He took the axe to the roots of what enslaves us from the past. Whatever is in your past, that would keep you from pressing onward. Not only can God lift it, he said he flings it as far as the east is from the west. It is nothing for Christ to take care of. And again, of course I'm not saying we don't carry things that need to be worked through in relationship. Of course, with patience, with wisdom, with sympathy, with care. But the scriptural picture for working through these things is not through staring into an abyss for untold hours. Rather, the scriptural picture is that of weights and burdens and sins falling away as together we look to Jesus Christ and run as those, are who re- as those who have been redeemed. And as we run faster and faster, it falls off more and more together. And this is the picture from the glorious parallel passage of this very text that we've been in from Hebrews 12. And this is in conclusion. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, so that he's assuming some sins are sticky. You need to lay that aside together and let us run with endurance the race that is set before you. And then look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And goes on to say, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And why do we consider Jesus? So that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so, Pilgrim Hill, let us look to Jesus together. Let us look to Jesus. Whatever in the past that still haunts us, whether sins against us or sins that we have done, let us look to Jesus. Christ really has freed us. We are the freest people in the world. So let us run together and let us remind each other a hundred times a day of what Christ has done. And may it be. And all God's people said, and amen. Well, Father in heaven, we do confess that even as the church, we have been so influenced by worldliness. We have at times tried to heal wounds lightly. And Father, now together we look to Jesus. We look to the cross where all of our sins were nailed to the cross and totally dealt with. We look to Jesus who is a sympathetic high priest who was tested in every way just as we are, but without sin, which means he really was worthy to take care of it and he really does understand. He's patient and merciful. And so, Father, I pray you would have extraordinary grace on Pilgrim Hill that you would give us eyes ahead to see Christ, to see the golden horizon, 
and to run the race that you have set before us to take hold of more of Christ in our time. And when the disciples of the Lord Jesus asked him how they ought to pray, he responded by saying, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And amen.